Research is really important because, by definition, it's the only way to get new knowledge. There's so much that isn't yet known that it's just a cool time to be in science. I think at the end of the day, what really gets us out of bed in the morning is just the curiosity, trying to understand things we didn't understand the day before. Welcome to REACH, the podcast that tells the stories of researchers, their studies, and how their work impacts you and the world you live in. I'm Cole Cullen. And I'm Beth Bamford. Today we're going to tell you about materials, more specifically the research being done at Penn State about materials. Have you ever seen the commercial where all the people are fighting over the electric outlets so that they can plug in their chargers to charge their devices? I have not seen that commercial. You should check it out. It's pretty entertaining. The world is full of gadgets, and everybody needs to charge those gadgets. When I interviewed Dr. Susan Trollier-McKinstry, she talked about technology she's working on that just might help that problem. I'm Susan Trollier-McKinstry. I'm a professor at Penn State University in the Material Science and Engineering Department. I am a Penn Stater from my undergraduate degree on, so I, when I was looking for schools, I wanted a school that had aeronautical engineering and ceramic science and engineering because I was going to work on space shuttle tiles. When I got here, I figured out space shuttle tiles had already been invented, and the net result was I looked around at the two departments, and in the area of electronic ceramic materials, Penn State has really been the world leader for longer than I've been alive. My research specialty is on thin films for dielectric and piezoelectric applications. So a dielectric is an electrical insulator. A piezoelectric is a material that converts between electrical and mechanical energies. And so I've been working on piezoelectrics the, my whole career. Because piezoelectrics convert between mechanical and electrical energy, I can take a mechanical motion and convert it into power. And so we're very interested in developing these for applications that range from the Internet of Things. Expand on the Internet of Things. So the idea behind the Internet of Things is that we'll be able to put sensors and communication packages many, many places. And that could be anywhere from your refrigerator literally saying your milk's about to go sour to... Um, something that might be monitoring how much time you've sat at a desk and your doctor needs you to get up and get moving. So we have all of these in-placed sensors that can communicate with each other, and they will all be communicating one with another. And they all need to be powered. And they all have to be powered. If you imagine, and this, this is pretty far out, so this is not a next year thing. If you imagine placing a trillion sensors and you don't provide local power, that means you're going to have to replace 500 billion batteries annually, which means, for the most part, 500 billion batteries in landfills. And 500 billion batteries, who wants that job? About seven years ago, we started a large program with North Carolina State University, the University of Virginia, and Florida International. And we're working on being able to build self-powered health monitoring devices. Health costs in the United States are enormously high. And one of the things that might mitigate that is if people 
were not in the hospital if they did not have to be in the hospital, and the people who went to the hospital actually needed medical care. And so one approach that you might consider using in such a case then is to be able to provide people individualized health monitors that are doing things like measuring their pulse, their oxidation state, and is also in providing a little information about the surroundings, maybe the temperature, the humidity level, the uh, pollen count, or the level of ozone that's in the atmosphere. And so it would be incredibly helpful for people who might have a long-term medical condition to be able to provide them personalized information. You've just walked into a room that might make you sick tomorrow. Maybe you need to go and, and be in a different place. And so the center that we're working on is really aimed at how do we miniaturize all of this, massively reduce the power that's required to run it, and then enable the human body or the human surroundings to provide power to that system so that a user doesn't have to think about it. They don't have to think, I've got to charge this too. I've got to change the batteries. And in practice, what the part that I'm working on is how can we take motion of the human body and be able to use that to power these medical systems. So how do we do that? How does, how does the powering work? How does the powering work? There's really three steps to converting mechanical energy into electrical energy. And so the first step is how do I take the motion of the body and couple that motion into a mechanical structure? And so the approach that we've taken is to utilize piezoelectric cantilevers. So think of a cantilever as a long, thin object. In this case, we make very thin metal foils, so about 50 microns thick. It's, it's roughly half the size, the thickness of a human hair. And we put about five microns, three to five microns of these, this piezoelectric material on both sides. And then we hold it on one end, and that's the clamped end, and then we shake material so that the, the rest of the, the beam, the cantilever beam, flexes. And as it flexes, it puts stress on the piezoelectric, and the piezoelectric converts that stress to electrical energy. The second step of the conversion is actually to use the piezoelectric to do the mechanical to electrical energy transduction. And then the third part, since when something's vibrating, some, if, if I have a layer on the top, sometimes it's in tension, sometimes it's in compression. And that means sometimes I'm going to get a positive voltage, sometimes I'm going to get a negative voltage. And so I need then to be able to take the whatever electrical energy I produce and convert it into usable electrical energy. And so we've been working very closely with a group of Mehdi Kiani and the electrical engineering department here. That's he's, His group has built very, very efficient conversion circuitry. So you need to couple the mechanical energy into some structure, convert it from mechanical to electrical, and then run a second conversion that makes it kind of useful electrical energy that I can put into a supercapacitor or put into a battery that then runs the rest of the electronic system. You're creating energy from motion, mm -hmm. essentially. That sounds like an electrical engineering mm -hmm. 
issue. Mm -hmm. Why is a material scientist doing this? <laughs> That's a great question. So in practice, Engineering doesn't divide by disciplines very cleanly. And so if you really want to build a system, you're working across discipline boundaries. Piezoelectricity occurs only in certain families of materials. My real contribution to this program is to figure out how can we increase the efficiency of the electromechanical conversion. So when we started this program, if we defined a figure of merit that basically said, what fraction of the energy can I help convert to electrical energy? The figure of merit was about 0.1 coulomb squared per meter to the fourth. And we've been able to take that up 10 times by engineering the domain structure of the piezoelectric material. And so the material scientist is working on this because we're trying to make the material more efficient. The more efficient we can make the material, the more efficient the system becomes. I mean, it sounds like you're creating mm -hmm. power mm -hmm. out of things moving. Out of things moving. And, and why can't why? we just do everything that way? <laughs> well, we're not going to solve the energy crisis this way. So this is not going to generate megawatts of power, but it's a really useful way of generating microwatts to milliwatts to, in, in a few cases, watts of power. What is it about materials that kind of gets you up in the morning? What gets me up in the morning? Material science and engineering is a cool discipline because I think of it as sitting kind of at the juncture between engineering, chemistry, and physics. So I get to work on all of that. So I get to go think about what controls, what are the physics that controls why a material has the properties that it has? How can I engineer that? How can I change it? I get to think about how am I going to make these materials so that I can optimize the materials that are possible. And then I get to use them. And that's that sitting at that juncture where we get to do wonderful fundamental science and make it important from the other end in terms of something that people manufacture and utilize, that's, that's kind of a cool thing to do. So Beth, you interviewed our next researcher. What was it about that story that you were interested in? Our next story is interesting to me because he's working on technology that could have helped me a couple of years ago when I broke my arm. He's developing things that would have helped my arm heal faster and stronger. I interviewed Dr. Jian Yang, a professor of biomedical engineering at Penn State who specializes in the study of biomaterials. Biomaterials is basically the material that's going to interact with the human body, with the biological system. So this means when you deal with the biomaterials, right, it's not just only material science. It's a material that has to interact with the human body. So there's a two-way interaction. Materials can influence the biological response. The biological response can also influence the material property. Just for example, so you, you have a materials you put in the body. The materials may generate some immune response because the body may recognize, oh, this is the foreign body materials. It's something not belong to my body, right? So then the body recognizes this is something invading into the body. They're trying to kick them out. This is a normal biological response from the body. But the biological response from the body can also affect material properties. They can make some enzymes, some proteins, some chemicals can, can help degrade materials or can make the material to erode, to fatigue. So this, can, can, this is something that we have to look this way. So in, in one word, in one sentence, biomaterial is the material that used in interact with biological system. 
Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a professor in biomedical engineering, so I, I do teaching, I do research. My background is more like material science, chemistry, and uh, so that this is why we can make materials, make new materials. And the materials, like I just mentioned, is really a foundation for many medical innovation. So, for example, you can use metal to make you know, stent for cardiovascular disease, or you can make um, you can make ceramic materials. Then you can use that kind of material to make uh, bone graft. Or, for example, you can also use metal materials to make hip replacement. So many medical device has to come from some kind of material. So I'm working on a field called tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. So tissue engineering means that you know. Um, you know, people suffer from the tissue loss, organ failure. So a lot of people waiting for for tissue transplant or organ transplant from donors. But you know, the donation, the transplant is obviously not enough. You know, uh, compared to the needs for for organ transplantation. So if someday people can use a materialist to make your own tissue organ, you do not have to wait for tissue transplant or organ transplant. That would be a huge impact to the medical field. The material has to be degradable. So that means that if you can use the materials to make some kind of template and put that in the body and uh, use the scaffold or template to guide the tissue regeneration, but then the scaffold and the template will be degraded and absorbed by the body. So only some leftover will be your own tissue organ. There's no immune rejection. So if this can be successful, there's going to be a huge impact to the medical field. I think our ultimate goal is can we build a human parts factory? Now, in the future, if somebody needs a, a tissue or need an organ replacement, just grab the tissue organ from the shelf and then implant into the human body. So now, the, the challenge, one of the significant challenges, how can we generate the right biomaterials for this purpose? We can use this kind of materials to make a bone screw, bone plate, pins, different kind of things. So we can use this kind of medical device for, let's say, you know, orthopedic fixation. We have licensed this technology to a company. It's called Acuitive Technologies. This is a company located in New Jersey. They are expecting to get FDA approval very soon to make biodegradable bone screw based on our materials. Now, they are hopefully at the end of this year, this product, going to be all over the world, going to generate a huge impact. So, so this is, I think to me, this is a perfect story about fundamental study, you know, yield a very nice optimal materials for medical vacation. So this is really great. I didn't realize how relevant this mm-hmm. um, interview would be to me because I have mm-hmm. a plate in my arm that has screws okay. mm-hmm. and you can feel the one screw. Yeah. There's like a bump on my arm mm-hmm. where you can feel a screw a little bit higher than mm-hmm. the rest of the plate or other screws. Mm-hmm. And so if that technology or biomaterials was available mm-hmm. seven years ago, mm-hmm. are you saying I could re- have... Yeah. had the surgery and had a, a different type of material put in my yeah. arm yeah. that would dissolve. I, I think this is very likely so because um, because the metal screw, I mean, has been a standard in, in, in orthopedic fixation surgery. They may have to take your bone screw out and do a second surgery to fix your bone. So this can possibly happen. I'm not saying this is going to happen to you. So <laughs> yeah, but but so that now this with the concept of biodegradable screw, so the idea you don't need a second surgery, right? So once it's fi- is put in your in your bone, fix your broken bone, for example, and then eventually degrade it, absorb it. There's nothing 
that left over, then you do not need a second surgery to take it out. So, so that's the ideal situation. So it's not only a short-term solution to mm-hmm. a broken bone, mm-hmm. but also it, it, it will help the bone heal faster. Yeah, that is also not, not a very good question so because you know there are some biodegradable bone screw in the market already. But our material, the, the nice thing for our material is that our material can help bone regeneration, can speed up bone healing because we can provide the signals, provide the molecules that cell need it. Our materials, when the material degrade, they can release citrate. Citrate that can regulate the bone stem cells, differentiate into bone cells to make bone tissue. Right. So this is, I think, this is you kind of at the second level of kind of um, the innovation that we are not just using the materials, just the materials. Now the material can bring a lot of biological benefits. So. In general, my field is basically I'm the biomaterial scientist. So my job is that we understand the biological needs, the medical needs, and use that as a guidance to design biomaterials to address the medical problems. So all what we do is not just only the material scientist. We combine medicine, biology, and the material science together to address the medical problems. I think this is a, a field is rapidly growing. People are not necessary to work in biomedical engineering f- department. They can work in material science department. They can material in chemistry department. They can work in mechanical engineering or electrical engineering. So biomaterials become very, you know, a broad field. People can benefit from making materials, from using materials to do what they need to do. That's fascinating mm-hmm. to think that in the yeah. future they're could be that possibility uh-huh. of yeah. not waiting on a list for an organ transplant, but yeah. That's actually growing or... Yeah, you, yeah, you can say growing your own organ. Because, because you see, ultimately the goal is that you, you build your own organ, right? So, and tissue, not from donor. If we can, we can develop technology, can address some medical problems. Now people are dying, people are waiting for suitable technology for, you know, to, 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 to cure the disease. If we can do something like that, that's the ultimate impact, I would say. My goal is that I hope that all I do can benefit the society and the patients. This type of technology is what will really impact patient care. Faster healing times, shorter hospital stays. Shorter waits for organ transplants. I can't wait to see what these developments lead to in the next couple years for patient care. Our final story for this episode is with Dr. Tak Sing Wong. He gave me the opportunity to say the words, camouflage poop. You've been waiting all your life for that moment. All my life. And that was the end of the REACH podcast. (laughs) We had a good run. My name is Tak Sing Wong. I'm Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering and Biomedical Engineering at Penn State. Um, I'm currently directing a laboratory called the Laboratory for Nature Inspired Engineering. As the name implies, um, we study nature. We look into biological system. Um, we are interested to look at all kinds of um, natural system, including insects, plants, and animals, and try to extract some of the clever strategy they use to deal with their everyday life. And we are particularly interested in the materials aspect of the systems. What is it about nature that you look to nature for your mm-hmm. 
for kind of your motivation, I guess. Yeah, uh, that that's a great question. Like, why why do we look into nature? So if you look at the the natural history of biological system, it has close to like three point nine five billion years of history, evolution history. So with such a long history, many of the solutions that are developed by nature are highly optimized. So it's like there. It's, we, we can treat it as like an encyclopedia. Like all the knowledge are really there. So why don't we just go into look at the natural world carefully and take some of this concept and use them to solve our own human problems, right? Pretty much everything we see in this physical world is made of some kind of materials, right? All the way uh, from the water that we drink, um, from the, the chair that we sit on, uh, even for uh, the materials for this microphone. Every, we are really living in a materials world. So understanding the science of how this materials is made of is very important because sometimes we um, want to solve problem by... Um, modifying the uh, mechanical property of the materials. So uh, we use advanced micro and nano manufacturing to try to recreate these materials and try to find applications for those materials. What are some of the projects that you guys are doing? Right. Yeah, um, our lab um, are interested in uh, multiple aspects of the biological system all the way from plants to insects to animals. Starting from the plant, many plant leaves, they are really water repellent. And one of the key reasons behind that was because of the micro and nanostructures that are present on the surfaces. So I was, I was very intrigued by, by this phenomenon that like just micro and nanostructures can give out like macroscopic phenomenon of water repellency. In layman's terms, can you kind of give a description of what micro nanostructures are? Yeah, so give you an example. Um, the diameter of a hair is about 100 micron. A thousand times of that, it will be one nanometer. So that will be a size of a molecule. So, so that gives you a sense of the, the size of different from molecule all the way to the diameter of hair. It's from one nanometer to about 100 micron. Our group are interested in the Lepantus pitcher plant, which is a canniforce that captures insects for its food source. We are very interested to look at why these plants can capture insects. And one of the reasons is because they have this very slippery surface that is evolved on top of this plant. So our group tried to uh, understand the mechanism and replicate this slippery coating and use this coating for different scenario. For example, if you have a super slippery, long, sticky coating, you can think of using it on a biomedical device that bacteria doesn't stick on it. You can put it on uh, airplanes so that ice or frost won't accumulate on it. Same for uh, automobile, like windshield, camera lens. So, um, so those are some of the area that my group has uh, looked at before. Um, so that's in the area of plants. In the area of insects, two years ago, our group has looked into this um, insect called a leaf hopper. So leafhopper is actually really interesting in the sense that their um, excrete or feces or poop is actually very advanced. Their poop looks like a micro-scale soccer ball. And on this micro-scale soccer ball, uh, it had some uh, lando-scale cavities surrounding the, the micro-scale soccer ball. And actually, there's a name uh, for this micro-scale soccer ball. It's called brocosum. 
And um, we study them. We try to understand why leafhopper excrete this brocosome. So one thing that biologists has found was that this brocosome, the excretion, they actually rub this brocosome on the newly laid eggs on the leaves for some purposes. And our group have been uh, interested to look at why. And um, to do that, we uh, use advanced micro and nano manufacturing method to recreate this micro scale soccer ball. I mean, as you can imagine, it's micro scale soccer ball, very so- sophisticated geometry. And we have to use a specialized way to make them. And what we find is that the soccer ball uh, can absorb light all the way from UV light to visible light to infrared light. And with that, because they can absorb all the light, when they cover this brocosome onto the newly laid eggs, insects and birds, because they see a whistle spectrum that are very different from human, they wouldn't be able to identify or wouldn't be able to discover the newly laid eggs because they had covered a layer of these particles on top of the surface. So in a sense, it's kind of like a camouflage coating. So it's camouflaged poop. It's like a camouflage poop, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, that's right. And let's go into even a smaller scale to the world of microorganisms. So um, very recently, our group has discovered this new material, a self-healing material, that is replicating the self-healing property of biological cell membrane. We call it like a self-healing liquid membrane. What it allows you to do is to let large particles to go through, but blocking small particles. And this is very different um, from the regular filter, like all the way from, from sieving, coffee filter, to water desalination. Right, those filter less small particles to go through, but blocking large ones. But this membrane we develop as like a reverse filter. So what kind of applications could this reverse filter be used for? Yeah, it can use in a lot of um, applications that previously weren't achievable using regular filter. For example, imagine in a battlefield or in a developing world where they do not have high-quality surgical facility, if a doctor wants to perform surgery on an open wound without worrying about infection, they can put this reverse filter onto the open wound so that this filter can block out all the dust and bacteria but at the same time, doctor can uh, push through the surgical tubes such as scalpel or tweezer into the, uh, the membrane to do surgery. So it can be used as like a surgical film. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's one application. And there are many more applications, for example, in agriculture. So in California, there's some kind of uh, summer berry that they do not want insects such as fruit flight to contaminate the fruit. But at the same time, they want bees to fly over this berry to pollinate, right? But then, like, uh, in the past, there weren't any mechanism to filter out smaller insects while allowing bigger insects to fly through. So with this membrane, this will be possible because fruit fly is smaller in size that it will be filtered out by the membrane, but then fruit fly, which is larger in size, that can, it can fly through the membrane and do the pollination with the, the summer berry. So as you're creating the membrane, you can adjust the size of things that are allowed and not allowed through the membrane? So yeah, you can tune the size selectivity. You can tune um, at what size of the particle it can pass through and at what size it cannot. So is this this membrane, is it in the real world yet? Is it being used or is it still in the lab? We published our really first paper uh, two, three months ago and it is still in the laboratory scale yet because uh, with different applications, um, we need to look at, for example, if we use it for surgery, we need to look at um, 
the uh, antibacterial fouling property. So different applications require different study, and that is something that we are still um, working on uh, in our lab. I have a very high hope for the uh, reverse filtration. For the regular filtration, like as I mentioned, sieving and coffee filter, it has been used for many years, particularly for sieving, where it's probably people use it for hundreds of years for different industrial applications. And now we have uh, proposed this new concept of reverse filtration. I think there are so many applications that can be derived from reverse filtration concept that um, I think many people haven't explored yet. I'm really, really excited to, to learn more about what this can be used for in the future. The work you're doing, you're, you're finding new things. You're discovering things. Mm -hmm. What's what's it like to 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 be in a field where you are creating and discovering new things? Yeah, it it's really exciting. It's um like every day um we we feel that the work that we do will someday will help people. I think that feeling um is is motivating, is is important, and because of that, like um, not only myself, my students are really enjoying the whole process of developing the technology. Yeah, it's been it's been a great experience knowing that like um some of the work that if we work hard enough it will be on people's hand one day. What's the most rewarding thing that you've done? I would say when people recognize the importance of our work, like when they see a video, maybe after a presentation, uh, they will just come to you to see, like thank you for doing this. This is very important and 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 things like that, like. Those are very rewarding because um, when you do research, it's a long process. It's not an easy process. And sometimes um, when we do our research, we don't know whether this is something important and people find it useful. I think getting that validation from the people um, is one of the most rewarding aspects of our work. Thank you for listening to REACH, and a special thank you to Drs. Susan Trollier-McKinstry, John Yang, and Tak Sing Wong. And don't forget, all the episodes of REACH can be found on our website. Please consider making a contribution to WPSU so that we can bring you content like this. Visit wpsu.org donate. Thanks.